Hello and welcome to the Emmanuel Croydon podcast. At Emmanuel Croydon, we exist to be a community drawn together by our desire to know and follow Jesus. We long to become disciples of Jesus who are equipped to serve him in the whole of life, transforming families, communities and workplaces as we love God with heart, mind, soul and strength. We hope you enjoy this week's talk from the morning services. Thank you for joining us today. Grace and peace to you. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Among these were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and Azariah, Abnebednego. But Daniel resolved not to devile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now God had caused the official to show favour and sympathy to Daniel. But the official said to Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord the king. He's assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men of your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard, whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food, and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for ten days. And at the end of ten days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and their wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. 
At the end of the time set by the king to bring them in, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks so much, Jen, for reading for us. I wonder, have you ever moved from being a fish in a small pond to a a, a small fish in a big pond? There's nothing like observing little children for reminding oneself of the distress of such an experience. So you see them at home, there they are, big fish, small pond, relaxed. They've negotiated the dangers, they know the opportunities. Above all, they have their loving parents always in the background. They have a deep confidence that everything's going to be okay. A confidence that will have them happily refuse to go to bed or try their luck on the sweet jar or boss about a younger sibling. But then you take those same children out into the busy streets. You let them lag behind just a few meters from the pram. You let them get knocked a few times by the knees of a hurried passerby, frightened by a car horn, momentarily transfixed by an angry shout overhead, and very quickly that confidence disappears. Fear, and indeed terror, begins to come over the face that just now bore a cheeky grin. Despair sets in, and that very small fish and an impossibly large pond can only sit down and cry and say, I want to go home. Sometimes as Christian children, we have a similar experience. Here in church or with Christian friends and family, we we feel safe. We feel like God is never too far away and that gives us confidence. But sometimes it's not so out there. Out there in the work meeting, in the extended family, back with school friends, at the sports club, in the airport, the business trip. The Christian, it seems, is a very small fish in a very large pond. And not only do we feel like small fish, but but so does our church and possibly even our God. So we hear the angry shouts of an atheist and, and it really takes the wind out of us. Out there, we see the constant flow of impressive, powerful, attractive and spiritually indifferent people. And they seem to be getting on very well in life in general without God. And they seem to say to us without words, you're mad, just give it up. Well, the book of Daniel was written to a people who knew that feeling so well. It was written to a people in exile. They were asking, how can we live as small Jewish fish in the large pond, or should I say the vast ocean, of the Babylonian Empire. 
And for that reason, I think for us as Christians, it's a supremely relevant book. And my hope and prayer over these few weeks or so as we go through it is that we will be strengthened through it to believe that above all, God still rules. And with that knowledge, that we would endure and press on in a way which brings praise and honor to him. We begin this morning by considering chapter one, whose whose basic message is that, that God still rules. And we'll see firstly how God still rules even where his people don't, and then secondly, how God still rules even when he's not known. But a bit more background as we start, which was filled out for us uh, nicely by Natasha earlier on. Verse one, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it, verse two tells us Nebuchadnezzar had taken with him some of the vessels of the house of God, the temple. He carried off the temple, uh, off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put, put them in the, in the treasure house of his God. So symbolically, Israel's God is now under the control of the gods of Babylon. The God of Babylon owns the stuff of the God of Israel, so it it would appear. And then, uh, as we've already seen, there's this final act of great political cunning. The king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young man, without physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning and so forth. And they were assigned to be taught by the king. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years. And after that, they were to enter the king's service. Brilliant way to suppress any further rebellion and to seduce the leaders of Israel tomorrow. Make them Babylonians. And among them, of course, was our hero, Daniel. But did you notice, even as we begin, and quite frankly, it feels like a sort of catalog of of disaster, verse 2 has a critical detail in it the author wants us to learn. It says, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the king of Babylon's hand. So Israel may be under the rule of Babylon, but Babylon is still under the rule of God. God still rules, even where his people don't. And so it is for us. We have our little corners, our little Judas, if you like, our our little territory, where, where we sort of feel like, yes, God's people do rule and hold some influence. But then we get thrust out into the real world, the world of work, the high street, the school gate. It's all, it feels very different. It seems so much bigger. It feels like there's no regard for God. We wonder what possible influence he could have over it. But Daniel 1 says to us in that situation, let us not forget that God still rules, even where his people don't. And if God still rules, even where his people don't, then three applications spring to mind. Number one, it's important to recognize there is no such thing as a godless place. Secondly, we've got to grasp the limits of human power. And thirdly, we've got to trust, trust that God is greater. First of those, don't listen to talk of a godless place. I wonder, do you ever get that, that, that frightening feeling? You, you go somewhere and you, and you think, oh, this is such a godless place. It feels like a place that is so far away from God's influence. Well, strictly speaking, there is no such thing as a godless place. God's hands are not 
tied by the absence or the weakness of his people. Even where God's people don't rule, don't have any influence, in fact, God has long been at work. God is no less God in the midst of some poisonous gossip on the WhatsApp. He's no less God on the summer holiday where we see no Jesus, only minarets and revelers or or whatever it is. He's no less God in the remote corners of the map where the gospel has never been heard. In that sense, there is no godless place. Secondly, we need to grasp the limits of human power. Perhaps we find the scale of of the news unsettling. But there is one fact that the BBC will never tell you, or at least very rarely. Our future is not ultimately in the hands of any of the great world leaders. The G7 as they meet together, or the CEOs of Apple or Goldman or ExxonMobil or whatever. Romans 13.1 tells us there is no authority except that which God has established. We're in the hands of world leaders only so far as it pleases God. Ultimately, we're under his rule. And it's a wonderfully encouraging moment when we grasp the limits of human power. But thirdly, we must trust in God. And this is challenging, isn't it? Because often appearances would suggest something quite different. And trusting that God is in charge is much more than just knowledge. It leads to a changed experience. To trust that God is greater is to feel peace even in our Babylon. And that doesn't mean we have all the answers. It doesn't mean we can understand how that power is being worked out. But it does lead to some peace, to not losing our rag when things are tough because we know God is greater than our circumstances. It means battling at times, but at other times it also means just recognizing we've got no more strength to battle right now. We're going to pray and then we're going to have a good night's sleep because the Lord is in his temple. He is ruling. I wonder whether you know that kind of trust. God still rules even where his people don't. And secondly, God still rules, even where he is not known. Verse 8 says, Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And so it goes on, and you'll remember the eunuch, despite his compassion, he's afraid of the king. And so he refuses to change the diet but Daniel manages to prevail upon him. He says, give, give me a trial run with the, with, the, with the veg and water. Daniel gets him to check back at the end, uh, and they, they don't look any worse. Uh, and so the steward agrees to take away the king's defiled food for good. And the point, quite rightly, as we've already mentioned, is not that we all need to go veggie, although there may be some compelling cholesterol and eco-related arguments for that. The, the point is that God still rules even where he's not known. It's it's an extraordinary little detail of God's sovereignty, isn't it? Even there, at the center of pagan Babylonian administration, God was pulling at the heartstrings of the chief of eunuchs. God was fiddling with the digestive system inside his four subjects, such that they would be spared the suffering for their obedience to him. And note in particular that God rules through those 
who do not know him. It seems unlikely, doesn't it, that the, the chief of the eunuchs or the steward had engaged Daniel in long late night chats and had now finally kind of converted to the God of Daniel. I think we'd understand these guys, they were, they were Babylonians. But verse 9 tells us God gave Daniel favor with them. So here are these agents of God, basically, doing God's will. God still rules even through those who don't know him. And I think that's important for us to believe on a personal level too. You know, let's say we're doing house improvements and we're about to get done over for something that's not our fault. Or or the children's school places hang in the balance and we've got very little confidence that it's all going to be done fairly. And in those kind of situations we might think, well, look at those people who are in, in charge around here. I don't trust them. They won't necessarily do the right thing. Does that mean God can't be in there, in the situation ruling? But our fate is not ultimately in the hands of men and women, but of God. And we need to understand that God can still work through people who don't recognize him. Brother Andrew, um, who tells this extraordinary story in God Smuggler of, of one occasion where he was crossing the border into Yugoslavia smuggling Bibles. He had a carload of, of Bibles and tracts and he was stopped at the border and his suitcases were opened and, and searched so that the border guards were, were eventually staring directly at piles and piles of Christian tracts and Bibles. And yet they stared at them and behaved as if God had closed their eyes and they had seen nothing. And they closed the bags and waved them on. It's an extraordinary moment how God seems to rule, sometimes spectacularly so, even through those who have no recognition of him. However, God rules not just through those who don't know him. He often puts his own people in extraordinary places. Daniel 1.17, to these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. I think it's an amazing moment. You've got this great empire of Babylon standing strong over the ancient Near East. And here is God bringing his people in and equipping them to bless. He gives them learning. And we hear of the impact that their learning had. The king talked with them. He found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Michelle, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. Imagine that. Imagine what the other Babylonian lads felt. These interlopers who've just suddenly come in, who are even better than us in our own home territory. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. So... Even though these guys have no rights in Babylon, their hands are completely tied. God is still able to use them. Three lessons from from that truth in the life of Daniel. Daniel, Number one, God rules through his own people, so hold your nerve. Hold your nerve. There are two attractive, but I think ultimately bad solutions to to the discomfort that we sometimes feel when we're out in the world. One of those solutions is, as Christians, we just 
run, run back and huddle in church and, and let the rest of the world go its own way. Another bad solution is, is to minimize the contrast between ourselves and the world. We say, well, we feel so different. Oh, why don't we just kind of be like everyone else and then it won't be so painful? Daniel seems to do neither of these things, but he holds his, his nerve. It seems Daniel thought quite carefully about when and how he was going to make a stand. I, I don't know about you, this is pure speculation, but I can't imagine he made it through three years of selection procedures exams, IQ tests, skill assessments, if he bashed every Babylonian that he met around the head with his Bible. I just can't imagine that's how he got to where he was. And I'm guessing that at times, he would have worried greatly. Am I compromised? But he held his nerve. And this is a complicated road to tread, which only the Lord can give us the wisdom for. Compromise is constantly knocking. And there's a temptation sometimes to just run away, but we don't necessarily need to sack in the job and just work for a church or work for a Christian NGO because then it's all just going to be a little bit tidier. We need to hold our nerve working as Christians in the world. And yet on the other end of the spectrum, we need to know our limits. So Daniel holds his nerve, but he also knows his limits. Verse 8, Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. Daniel was clear when his loyalty to Babylon would need to be ditched in order to stay obedient to God. He knew that if God rules, then we don't need to disobey him in order to get up the greasy pole and and take the the matter in hands ourselves. God is in charge. So Daniel could say, look, if God wants to act through me, he can do so without me needing to step over my limit as a believer. And frankly, if he doesn't want to use me in the power structures, if I, if I stay at the bottom because I've set my limits here and I haven't compromised and therefore I haven't been promoted, then that's okay. Because ultimately it's God's call anyway. So how does that apply? Well, it's wonderful that there are those who, um, in this church family as well, deliberately earn way more money than they need just in order to be able to give a significant portion of it away in Jesus' name. A wonderful way of serving. What a gift those people are to the church and the whole world. But here's the thing that isn't great, is if we end up getting into a mindset like this, I would like to um, earn money that I can give away for God, but because the world of finance or, or commerce or private medicine or whatever I'm working in is so cutthroat and godless, I I will need to neglect my family and I've got to put my spiritual life on the back burner otherwise I'm not going to make it in this world and therefore I can't make the money and therefore I can't serve God. That's where we go wrong. No, God God rules. If he wants to turn, if that's your particular ambition, I don't know what it is, if he wants to turn everything that you touch to gold, he can do it. He can do it if you only give him two hours of work a day. But that's not our prerogative. As Christians, we obey first And then we leave the consequences to God. So like Daniel, we need to know our limits. Now, that's just one example. I guess for all of us, for every workplace, for every sphere of activity, we know our equivalent of the king's table. We know that thing that comes to us covered in the food and wine of self-advancement and comfort. I wonder what that is for you. 
Are you clear when it comes to it how you're going to draw the line? Do you know how you need to navigate situations in your workplace so that you're able to act in good conscience when it lands on your desk? If you're involved in sectors of compliance and regulation or something like that, are you really clear what it means to work with genuine integrity there? If you're working with a business partner who doesn't share your values, have you worked out ahead of time how, how are you going to work it? When, how are you going to negotiate a clash of values? We need to know our limits. And finally, and very briefly, we, we're to watch for signs of grace. The, um, this chapter ends with just a tiny little nudge of grace. Verse 21. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. If you're good on your, on your history, you'll realize that that's three further Babylonian kings. So Belshazzar, Darius, and Cyrus. Daniel survived all the way through. Even when God's people were completely on the back foot, God is working by his grace. And so we can expect in our daily Babylon to see those little tokens of grace in the same way. Let's look for those tokens of grace. Let's thank the Lord for them. And let's use them as reminders of his immeasurable grace when he comes to rule completely at the return of the Lord Jesus Christ where every injustice will be repaired and we will no longer need to live by faith but by sight in the God who rules for eternity. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you that you are the great and sovereign ruler. Lord, sometimes we see that so clearly. Other times we see it only by faith and then dimly. But we pray that we would trust it to be true. And we pray that you would give us those little signs of grace that you are at work, that we might be encouraged to hold our nerve, to know our limits, and to continue to live faithfully for you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Emmanuel Croydon podcast. For more information about our church and everything we have going on, visit our website, emmanuelcroydon.org.uk. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram to see and hear what's going on in the life of our church. God bless you and have a wonderful week.